All right, welcome to this first episode of your Downtime Podcast 2022 World Cup coverage supported by Maxxis Tyres. Maxxis is synonymous with performance and racing and is the winningest brand in the history of World Cup and EWS racing. No matter where or how you ride, Maxxis has the tyres for you with a wide range of tread patterns, casing and compound options. Maxxis has supported my whole season of World Cup pre and post race shows and as a result I'll be heading to four rounds plus the world champs to bring you the best and most in-depth racing coverage possible. We'll be joined by Chris Kilmurray, Nico Mullally and Elliot Jackson to get into the nitty gritty of the sport for those of you who love it just as much as I do. Maxis are also going to be giving away some awesome stuff throughout the season and for these first few races you've got a chance to win some very special Minion 20th Anniversary socks and gloves. All you need to do is to share the episodes in some way on Instagram and make sure you tag me at Downtime Podcast and at Maxis Bike in the story so that we can pick a winner. You can check out the entire range of Maxis tyres over at maxis.com and find the tyres at your local Maxis dealer. You can also give them a follow on Instagram where they're at Maxis Bike. If you'd like to get competitive, then I've created a fantasy DH league for downtime listeners over on Pinkbike. It's free to join and there will be some downtime podcast merch for the winner at the end of the season. I'll be letting you all know who's leading on the show throughout the year. Head over to pinkbike.com, click on fantasy DH in the menu bar and create your team. Once you've got your team together, click join league and you'll find us near the top of that list. There's no password required, so it's super easy to do and it'd be great to see you all there. All right, the first round in Lords is this weekend, so we're kicking off the race season by chatting with Coach to the Stars, Chris Kilmurray, aka Point One Athletic. We chat about the build-up, the importance of pre-season racing, the demands of the track, and the impact of temperature on the bikes. We also cover psychology, who's looking quick, some of the new technology trends that we're expecting to see, and plenty more. So, without further ado, here's Chris Kilmurray. Chris Kilmurray, it's that time of the year again. Racing is upon us. We're less than one week away from the first round. How are you, first off? Awesome, yeah, doing doing well. Uh, happy and excited uh, that we get a race this early in the year, unlike you know three months earlier than than last year. Uh, sadly, we do have a, an eight week gap between this race and Fort William for the next one, which is ridiculous. But hey, yeah, good to be back though, and like you say, getting stuck into it early. Let's yeah. let's start off uh, talking a little bit about training. I guess what what sort of stuff are riders likely to have been doing over the last few weeks to to feel ready to sharpen up for that first race? How are they shifting their training? Well, I mean, it looks it looks to me just kind of anecdotally from from having been at the the Portuguese Cup in Taruca, which is basically a mini World Cup similar to the race the weekend after, which was in Brude in France. Um, so having been at that event in Portugal and been in Lusa the week prior, where you had you know, five or six of the top teams there as well. Having been there and vicariously keeping a, a close spy's eye on, on Instagram and the other social media platforms, it looks like everyone is literally throwing the kitchen sink at preparing for Lord. Uh, I think there's there's probably a few little, few little details in terms of physical preparation that maybe some riders are holding back on, uh, peddling specific stuff and, you know, kind of the the density of your high intensity training let's say so the frequency the density and how often they're they're getting that high intensity stimulus they're probably holding back ever so slightly on that because the real tough physical tracks and the back-to-back racing is coming later in the year mm-hmm. so there's probably a couple of riders who are holding back a little bit but on the flip side of that i have seen and heard of a few riders kind of picking up illnesses and little small injuries throughout the testing 
kind of on the bike testing and, and training stuff leading into the likes of Taruka and Briud. So as riders were shifting from purely physical training where they might have ridden downhill once or twice a week to really upping the volumes of downhill training and then potentially trying to keep up some physical training in between that, it looks like a couple of riders have picked up a few sniffs, coughs, colds, viruses, injuries, niggles. So maybe not on the on the back foot. Even a couple of the riders I, I coach, uh, we've been having to manage things the last the last 10 days or so. And I think that's coincidental in some of it, but definitely I think everyone is so, so keen to get racing and to see where they line up at, a, at an actual World Cup and see how, you know, bike changes and team changes and testing and training is gone. I think a lot of people are just kind of potentially a little bit too wound up. There's a little bit of excess energy just bubbling over and we're, we're seeing already people kind of cracking at the seams. <laughs> yeah, well, it's not just the physical sort of stresses from the training but i guess the mental stresses of that first world cup are really starting to to get heavy on people right it's it's very much around the corner yeah for sure and, and they can never really truly be separated you know the 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 mental the, the the psychological side of things i suppose if you were to apply a model to it you'd apply the biopsychosocial model which is the biological the psychological and the social and for downhill especially that that kind of model really works really well because you go to a race and and you're dealing with the social side of things which has a huge impact on your psychology which has a huge impact on your biology and all of those things back and forth are continuously and forever connected and then you add in your bike setup and you're puzzling and you're tweaking and you're tuning and new parts new frames new changes new teammates who turn out to be faster right off the the bat formula one style you know so um yeah, it's. I think everyone's just mega keen to get going, yeah, and happy yeah. to have the opportunity to do so in the month of March, you know, for sure. And Amory was one of the riders that uh, sat out of Breed, was planning on racing, but he was feeling a bit under the weather, right? He looked pretty uh, phenomenal in Taruka, though. Yeah, he was most certainly on it in Taruka. Um, the definition of on it for anyone, I don't know if everyone understands what on it means, but it's kind <laughs> of like willing and capable of taking big risks without him perceiving it as big risk if that makes sense like you know yeah. run, running the edge of the tire running braking late being super aggressive and direct with the line just confident happy obviously bike is working very well and and that's probably the key part of being on it let's say is that you and the bike have gelled extremely well and he, he's had a, he's had a good run at this which is one of the the very few benefits of being injured uh, multiple times back to back and then being injured mid-season like he was last year is that you actually get this huge run out. You don't feel physically, emotionally, psychologically as burnt out after a season. You feel more motivated because he only got the race the last couple of races. So you can carry that right through your off season training, but you get to the first race and all of a sudden you might be a little bit too keen for too long, you know? So yeah, yeah it's interesting. It's, it is, it is very interesting and it's, it's something that has to be kind of finally managed when you have a race this early in the calendar especially given we've got this eight week gap leading into Fort William you know yeah is it hard for riders to get on it as such in a race that isn't a world cup like I've seen a few riders commenting on social that they weren't really feeling the intensity there and you know as a result the results weren't there I think that's quite individual in, in one sense and then potentially team led and environment led in another sense so I think there is definitely some teams that kind of the overall arching overarching vibe let's for want of a better word or maybe you know a, a briefing before racing is that you know we're not here to go as fast as possible to win this race in Breud or Taruka or wherever we're here to go through processes and systems and work on just getting up to race speed and getting the whole unit gelled again whereas other teams other riders were absolutely happy to 
risk the biscuit. And uh, definitely the Comensal Mukov crew in Taruka were most certainly happy. They won three three of the four main categories and they were most certainly happy to take risks. And I did a little bit of analysis afterwards as I kind of always would just in terms of um, percentages, deficits, male, female, junior, gaps across top five, top ten, that sort of thing. Sadly, we didn't have splits to um, to dig into more detail, but Miriam's pace, for example, in Taruka was as fast as an elite woman has potentially ever ridden, if we take into account that Amory was probably riding as fast as elite men will ever ride. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it was definitely certain riders are extremely keen. Nice. So, yeah, yeah what can we learn from pre-race, pre-season races like Taruka then? I think a lot of riders, a lot of teams will be most interested in to see how um, rider and bike perform under the clock in that scenario. So is the bike setups that you've you've found yourself at through testing and tweaking in a place like Lusa, for example, over multiple runs over a long period of time, is that bike setup adequate when you actually add a little bit of true race intensity on a track that was, you know, physically and, and technically and technologically pretty demanding in terms of impacts and drops and length and speed and that sort of thing. So a lot of teams have just looked at that to be like, okay, like in this scenario, was bike good enough? Was wheel tension correct? Was tire or insert set up where we needed to be? What were our processes of making changes on the fly or making changes between qualities and finals without actually getting to test it? Did that work out? So depending on what the team the team processes and team environment is, a lot of teams will will use a, a race like Taruka just to fine-tune those sorts of details of actually, oh, do I need to make a change between this run and that run? Can I f- afford to make a change? Do we know enough to make a change without actually getting to try it before we go back on the clock? Was the was the balance of the bike actually okay at high speed, physically, subjectively? How did I feel You know, at race intensity on a race track against my peers, knowing that there was at least the ego goals were on the line? You know, there's no points for the overall. There's no World Cup prizes, prize money. But there is, you know, 10, 15, you know, 20 of your your actual peers who you're yeah. ju- judged against week in, week out on the start list. So that definitely increases intensity. And then that increase in intensity and that increase in, not the fear of failure, but that increase in um, realism, that increase in representativeness of, of your actual World Cup environment allows riders to potentially elevate themselves beyond what they would at a preseason race normally. And then that allows you to dig into bike, body, processes, team, team environment, team decisions, all those sorts of things. Even maybe, you know, some riders who are really good at making notes and reflecting on their, their actions and their performances might dig into their nutrition. They might dig into their mental preparation. They might have tried a new visualization strategy or a new way of using the GoPro. So yeah, there's an endless amount of things you could do with a race like Taruka. Yeah, for sure. And so anyone other than Amory and uh, Miriam there that particularly impressed you or maybe even disappointed a little bit people that were were off where you'd expect them to be? That is actually a very good question. Um, I almost need to get get a a result list up here just to actually actually see who who did what. Um, I don't think anyone particularly, I don't think anyone stood out as having a a very bad race. I don't think anyone stood out as, as doing anything particularly wrong or obviously, you know, a high profile rider like Loic Bruni, who finishes maybe seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth or whatever. Um, you'll start to get a little bit of a little bit of people who are going, oh, what's that all about? But as we saw in Snowshoe, when push comes to shove, um, you know, he, he's 
the epitome of world class. Mm-hmm. Uh, but having said that, you know, for a good portion of last year, Loic wasn't really the man to beat for for multiple small details and reasons. And that just goes to show you how competitive the elite male field is. That when you're as good and as experienced, as well-rounded and as well-supported as Loic Bruni, if all the details aren't perfectly aligned, you're not winning races, which is yeah. outrageous, you know. Amory's winning margin... Um, was one of the, the reasons why I said that, you know, that was pretty much as fast as elite men will go because his winning margin over Gonzalo, the the Portuguese rider, was, was you know, three seconds almost, I think. And then you had Benoit Coulange in third. Uh, Benoit was on the V5, the new Comencel. And that was a pretty, like, you know, he hadn't had much time on it. So that result was was really, really good. Uh, Charlie Harrison, who I coach in fifth place, um, you know, at a, a European race and a track he'd never seen before, Versus, you know, a lot of the people in front of him in the results list have ridden this track before in different guises. So that was a, an impressive result. And then Miriam, Valley and Tane battling it out between qualies and finals was really good. All of them went quicker in finals than they did in qualies. Um, they all kind of went for it and really battled it out. So that was a good insight into what is potentially could be our, our top three ladies for the season, you know. Yeah, good stuff. And anyone moving up from juniors this year that you think could be like a threat into the top fives, top tens in both men, men's and women's? That high up the field? Maybe not, straight off the bat. Uh-huh. Uh, Dennis Luffman on FMD. Um, okay. Rode, in the end, got red flagged in finals. And um, it took so long to get back up the hill and the weather was so cold that he decided pretty you know, smartly for a, a first year lead to not do his, his rerun because he said it was just wasn't worth the risk to try and replicate that level of intensity having got that cold um, and having had got red flag further down. But he was he was pretty high up there. He was 18th, I think, in qualities it was. Um, so he's definitely capable of, of some pretty good things as a as a first year um, as a first year elite. Um, Ronan Dunn, who's not a first year elite Irish rider, um, was right up there all week in terms of yeah. just practice pace, video analysis, qualities, finals, the whole lot. So that's, he's not first year elite, but he's going to be super interesting to watch. He has a reputation for being a, a loose pilot. For <laughs> a better term. Uh, Lenzer Heide last year, I think the, he had a, a gang of spectators following him down the hill just to see what he'd do next, you know? <laughs> so it'd be interesting to see what he does as he, as he tries to calm things down and channel that ability for risk and intensity, channel that into race runs. Um, First year juniors, um, super interesting. Hugo Marini, who's on Comensal Mukov, um, French racer who's done a lot of winning in the in the lower categories, the youth cadet categories. Um, his times are already real competitive. Uh, he won in Taruka and I think he won in Briud as well. So super interesting to see what he does. Um, there's actually, I, I said, like I said, if I had the result list in front of me, we could talk about this for the next half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> Fair like, enough. And bottom line is the depth of support, the depth of ability, the depth of desire to do the work required to chip away at climbing up the rankings in all the categories is pretty, it's pretty impressive. You know, elite ladies is, is pretty deep right back through the field. Now elite men is just outrageous. You know, there was probably 20 of the world's best in, in Taruka and we were still missing probably 10 more. Um, and the junior categories are going to be super interesting. And for the first time ever, it looks like this year coming into 2022, the junior female categories have multiple riders with actual genuine support, which is going to be really mm-hmm. cool to see how it, it's going to be really cool to see how it helps them battle each other and then how that support and uh, competition between them in their category, how that affects how they stack up against the elite ladies. 
because historically yeah. junior ladies are, are with the exception of maybe valley recently but historically junior ladies are always quite a ways back from uh, the elite ladies just from the, the lack of the necessity to push that hard you know yeah, both well. Who are the ones to watch there? So Isabella Ankova, Phoebe Gale. Yeah, Phoebe Gale, Isabella, uh, Gracie Hemstreet. I think she's on Norco. Katie. Ah, uh, yeah. I saw and, her riding in the US, and she looked incredible. To be fair, that's cool. Yeah, it's, it's really good to see a lot of the like Phoebe. You know, a lot of natural riding ability that has been developed because riding from a relatively young age for for females now is is just normal it's just totally normal you know there's there's no there's no there's not as many barriers as there would have been historically especially in terms of equipment availability and size and that sort of thing you know and and then there's a slacking girl whose name off the top of my head i can't remember riding for um united ride ns bikes uh, couscous's team um so we're looking at four five maybe even six supported female juniors which is going to be super cool to see i'm stoked for that yeah good stuff Let's talk a bit about Lords then. Um, sounds like you and a lot of other people were there in the last few weeks. What do we know about the track, uh, either for this year or, or you know, info from the past as well? From what I what I gather, just from following the the track builders account on Instagram and that sort of thing, it's give or take the same track as we've previously had in 2015, 16, and 17 for the World Cups, with a couple of. They, they dropped a few teasers in French uh, on their Instagram account saying that, you know, we're keeping the classic features, the road gaps, the wall section, the top rock garden. And then there's going to be a couple of variations between that and a couple of surprises. So hopefully the surprises aren't more whoops because <laughs> whoops need an engine, not a push bike, you know. But anyway, that's a different, that's a different story. <laughs> and what, were you able to ride much of the track while people were there? What was open? Uh, I wasn't there. I don't think anyone, I'm not sure if anyone. Oh, was sorry. There. No, I wasn't there. Um, the bike park's closed until April 1st um, for multiple reasons, as far as I know. Um, but I've just, yeah, I've just seen the photographs and it's it looks like we're looking at a classic Lord. And I had forgotten, just doing my pre-race preparations, I, I dug into some old, you know, footage results, helmet cams, done all the, the prep I'd normally do. And I'd forgotten how rough and gnarly and fast it is. Like average speed in 2017 2016, 2017 was 41 kilometers an hour and it's not by any stretch an, an easy track. You know, it, it doesn't have easy sections like Lenzer Heider or Leo Gang to up the average speed. It's just full on top to bottom. So, um, yeah, it's it's truly a, a classic World Cup track in terms of, you know, 490 meters descending and 1.9 kilometers long. Um, starts going right riders right across the hill and peels left and stays going left uh, which a lot of world cups tracks do then they tend to go one direction across the hill um and it's got a huge amount of potentially gnarly terrain um so i'm just yeah mega excited for the track almost more than anything else yeah yeah apologies i thought you said you guys had been there recently but uh obviously not so yeah i mean a track from my memory at that, that top rock section the walls some of those big features are, are full on like yeah. are there are there particular sections that kind of separate people i remember seeing yeah. some of like the top guys like loic and aaron through that top rock section finding insane gaps and some, yeah some mad lines up there for sure i, I won't give too much away because I've, I've done the analysis <laughs> i've done the analysis and there is stuff that does separate people so i can't say too much um <laughs> sorry to the fans but no like you, you've kind of yeah it's it's relatively obvious you don't have to be a rocket scientist or have any sort of a degree to figure it out do you that top rock garden um, will always separate people because it's, well, for multiple factors, because it's early in the run. 
So you basically, you do a little traverse and then you do a very tight 180 degree right-hand corner and then pretty much you'd have a, a short 20 meters or less to set up and you're just into those rocks. And the exit is flat, even actually slightly uphill. So there's, and then the, the gaps available and the ability just to skip across the top and find your blind very precisely because the exit's actually blind from from where you enter to where you change direction to where you exit. There's two, maybe three blind spots. Um, so you have to kind of be confident that where you're going is where you need to be going. And you'll, I, I, I remember vividly just chain rings and bottom brackets just getting <laughs> obliterated in, in 2017, um, partly because it was so slippy in the mornings. Um, and then the exit, like I said, is quite flat. So that's a critical section. Critical because it sets the tone and the rhythm for the rest of your run. Critical because it is technically demanding. Critical because it is demanding on bike setup. And critical because the exit is uphill. Uh, and then the wall section is critical because it's terrifying. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think you can slice it anyway. You come in. I remember walking it um, previous editions, and you just kind of crest that rocky brow, drop into this little gully section where, where everyone will have seen a clip of Bruni gapping in and kind of just getting ejected out. And you do a pretty hard break, and the the track peels left, and you've just got the wall. And it's just vertical. It's like 80 degree, 80% slope or something into that left-hander. And it's full of stuff. It's full of lots of stuff. Um, so yeah, it's, it's pretty gnarly. Uh, I saw, I saw some people actually, the polls are already put out. I saw on Instagram, people have been up there having a sniff and I saw the polls are put out. It was really tough to chat, tough to see between the course marking polls and the B zone polls, exactly what way they're going to tape it. And obviously mm-hmm. taping can change once the UCI see it and Red Bull TV see it. Um, so, but even those little factors can have a somewhat, not a big impact, but can have an important impact on lo- ability for line choice and all those sorts of things. So we actually, even though it's going to be give or take the same track, how it's going to be taped, it'll have a little impact. I remember in 20, 2016, no, 2017, it had, it had a pretty substantial impact on a couple of sections. It had been yeah. taped quite different from 2016. So yeah, it's just, yeah, it's, it's a mad bit of track really. Uh, but they, and even the sections connecting the feature sections, let's say, were considerably longer than I remembered when I went back to it. So it's, yeah. a, demand, it's a demanding piece of kit. You know, it's over three minutes long for the for the elite men. Uh, and in slipping conditions, it was almost four minutes for the elite females, three minutes 40 or something. Crazy. Okay. So, I mean, last time around, it was 2017, last time we visited, and it th- yeah. there was a few... Uh, spanners thrown in the works i guess the first one was that the syndicate turned up on 29ers and sort of caught everyone unawares are you expecting any interesting tech shifts this year do you think like things seem to have settled a bit on wheel size like most people are on mullets but a few 29ers kicking around anything you think will come along more high pivots this kind of stuff yeah it's funny that everyone's settled on the mullet um yeah, crazy. Everyone's just kind of decided that mullet's just optimal because it, it feels amazing when you ride it. Like it just it just kind of has the right the right characteristics. It's it's a strange one, um, but there's probably room to change wheel sizes and improve there even and optimize further mm-hmm. um, to the point where the UCI will have to mandate a wheel size like other disciplines. Yeah, um, yeah high pivots, medium high pivots, whatever you call them. You know, somewhat rearward axle path bicycles that chew bumps and reduce pedal kickback. Um, and allow you to maybe tailor anti-squat and anti-rise a bit, bit easier um, yeah. will be everywhere. They're all over the place. They're just like an, an infestation. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do know there, there is a couple of teams who are bringing them, so you'll see them in Lourdes, um, where you've not seen them before. 
Um, and we're, we're, we've already hit the point where there's going to be so many of the best riders, best teams, biggest budget teams with either official or prototype medium to high pivot bikes that the results sheet is going to be jammed at them. So it's going to skew yeah. perception as that's what you need. So it's going to be hard to actually truly analyze um, objectively what's what's happening, but you will see lots of high pivots. Yeah, you'll see lots of high pivots. Um, how that pans out across the categories, I don't know. That's what I'm interested to see, how it how it affects, I suppose, the the dynamics, the, the, the inherent abilities of the female riders, the junior riders, the lesser males, the better males, that sort of that sort of thing I'm, I'm interested to see, you know, because obviously historically commensals have been the privateers bike of choice, which may have actually not been a great choice because um, there weren't the, the older V4s weren't particularly versatile, um, but nonetheless a, a fantastic race bike, especially when it got steep. Um, so I think Trek sessions are going to be pretty popular with the privateer this year. Yeah. It's not their success last year and they're relatively okay value. Um, and obviously there's a lot of Canyon teams. There's a lot of, uh, trek teams there's a lot of commensal teams so yeah interesting to see but that's what we're going to see and then other well, trends so so i think we'll see a bigger diversity in tires so tire brands continental the v schwalbe maxis being the kind of main ones we're going to see and a few others uh michelin specialized um kind of tra- doing a big pushback to use their own tires on their factory team mm-hmm. um so tire tire technology tire widths um tire wheel combos avoiding failures increasing performance that sort of thing obviously some high profile failures for for envy schwalbe commensal last year yeah so it's going to be super super interesting to see how the the tire wars develops and that that's an area of performance which i'm always really interested in because it is you know it's your contact patch it has an enormous impact on how you feel on the bike especially in a place like where early morning temperatures afternoon temperatures can have a huge contrast so that sort of thing is going to be super interesting. Obviously, most people have seen RockShock have a, a different boxer, a prototype boxer on the go. There's been a lot of photos on the internet. So who uses that? Who doesn't use that? How that pans out is going to be interesting. And then beyond that, you know, we've seen the intense prototype. Um, other teams are bringing it, like I said. Um, it's just, yeah, technological warfare, it looks like. It's cool. It's good. Yeah. It's good. Technological warfare, but it seems that everyone has... S- not equal resources but enough resources to not be on the back foot yeah that makes sense what about electronically controlled suspension we saw a little bit um on greg and miriam's bikes at world champs last year or lenza hyde can't remember which round any do you think we'll see more of that it was at at both rounds it started at worlds and then and worked its way on to lenza hyde um i think both of them only used it at lenza hyde and then in the final it was just miriam who who had it on her bike whether she used it we don't know um Short answer, yes, it'll definitely be more prevalent, especially because SRAM have their flight attendant technology now. Yeah. Um, but whether a switch-controlled binary low-speed compression system is of any use to downhill, I, I just don't know, really, to yeah. be totally honest. I, I know I, I've heard rumors that, you know, uh, both of the main brands, and obviously Olin's have uh, mechanically or had a mechanically controlled one that Bruni used in Lusa. Um all of those brands will probably try something for Fort William Leo gang, especially Fort William, that pedal yeah. between the jumps at the bottom. Um, obviously, it's the kind of thing that needs to be practiced because the bike does pedal feel and especially jump different when it's got a lot of low-speed compression on. And maybe I'm incorrect. Maybe there is more to it for some of the brands than just low-speed compression. But yeah, like I, I've always had the, the, the idea and the thought and, and spoken to a lot of people, you included, about the idea of semi-active suspension for downhill. But I think everyone 
comes back at me with similar replies that the frequency, the amplitude and the the difference in impact and bump size and shape means that truly semi-active suspension for a mountain bike is just not possible or not wouldn't be advantageous. You just get yourself into trouble before you get yourself into performance <laughs> benefits. You know? yeah. But having said that, yeah. technology moves fast and yeah. Williams had semi-active suspension in a Formula One back when most of the people listening to this podcast weren't even born. So, exactly, yeah. There's technology <laughs> existing for sure. We'll see what mm-hmm. happens. And then it's also thrown a spanner in the works in the past through weather. We've seen some some wild cards take victories there. Alex Fail last time out in 2017 when the rain came in pretty heavy, and Greg Minard put in that incredible uh, run in the heavy wet conditions and showed everyone that the 29er could work for him for sure yeah um whether at the moment the forecast looks okay i think mm-hmm. other than like you say really cold mornings and evenings yeah the, the temperature variation is a big challenge <clears throat> so the the more astute teams will, will have already planned to deal with that um, tell us a bit about how they deal with that uh getting getting and keeping bikes as warm as possible so how teams and riders are going to deal with that with the funicular and the weight at the top with a big big queue especially if you're group b practice you're going to have a, a big queue mm-hmm. um to drop into the track to get a sniff at the ice when you say keeping bikes warm are we talking suspension mainly or tires or what um yeah suspension and tires would be the two the two primary ones for sure and there, there is a big difference taruka was super super cold in the mornings it's a really exposed for anyone who's been to taruka in portugal and um, it's a super exposed hillside um, especially race day morning, the wind was howling and it was probably four or five degrees max air temperature, but wind chill, it was feeling sub-zero. And first run, I was on the track to do some analysis uh, first run, so 8.30 it started, and I almost froze to death. And uh, I had to like change hands waiting for clips between clips because my hands were so cold. Um, and the noise difference in bikes between first runs and an hour later was... Out, like night and day difference like the the, okay. the the auditory feedback as a rider even would be phenomenal just tires were just rock solid yeah tire pressures were different tire compounds sidewall construction the whole thing was just ridiculous and then suspension you know oil oil's viscous and viscosity changes and here you go so i think yeah, yeah. teams are gonna have to deal with that and lured um yeah we'll, we'll see how it pans out you know the, the forecast i you know what it is minimums of two or four or something like that in the mornings but depending on inversions, I, I've seen a lot of people talk about, oh, you know, the, the town, the forecast is for the town, uh, but the track's almost 1,000 metres higher, which it's not. It's 450 metres higher. Uh, and what happens a lot in mountainous regions is you get a good temperature inversion. So it could be warmer at the top than the bottom. So who knows? We'll see. We'll, we'll manage it when we get there and we'll see. But it's definitely something that needs to be thought about. Yeah. And potential for showers on race day afternoon, by the looks of it. It's the last forecast I saw, but it doesn't That's look that. horrific. Yeah, one of the... Uh, uh, kind of semi-local rider that I, I work with uh, sent me a forecast this morning. I don't know what forecast app he uses, but it looked shower-free now. Okay. Well, that's, even though it's six days out, that's long range. So, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Anything but yeah, sadly, um, the key thing is the, I can't remember what type of rock it is. I'm no geologist, but the rock is slippy rock, all right? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> really slippy rock. Um, and the dirt is equally, it's, it's definitely got some layers of clayish type dirt um through through the topsoil so 
I remember people saying, you know, in 2017, when, when Fayol won and, and the top qualifiers couldn't, could just could, literally couldn't ride. They were like, oh, what's wrong with them? Like, you know, World Cup downhill is, is this or it's that. Or they're afraid of rain or whatever. And I was just like, well, you need to actually ride it in the wet and see yourself because it is glass, like actual glass. I remember trying to ride the bike park that runs parallel to the World Cup track in 2016 in the morning. And that was obviously worse because it hadn't been ridden. So it was just a hard, hard pack on top. And it was literally unrideable like actually unrideable like i just had to like tripod my way around corners you know so we'll see. so yeah so long story short uh, let's say our collective prayers to whoever your god is for no showers please yes please all right and then clock just changed on saturday night right so everyone loses an hour of sleep is that everyone relevant lose. it's relevant for practice because it means practice is an hour b practice is an hour closer to nighttime mm-hmm um, and yeah, I think the sun comes up six minutes before B practice starts. Yeah, so I think it'll be bright enough to where you can see where you're going, but it's most certainly not optimal. So, um, so yeah, the, the, the teams and the UCI or the, the elite teams had asked the UCI to ask the organisers and Lord to move the, the date, and Lord couldn't just for whatever multiple reasons they couldn't or wouldn't. Um, so that's what we're stuck with, sadly. But that's one of the yeah, between supply chain issues, um, COVID related and everything else related uh, supply chain issues for teams um on top of the clock change on top of the potential for bad weather on top of the light being low um yeah a lot of teams wanted this this race to be moved a little bit later in the year but it's just not happened so here we are just gonna deal with it yeah I don't, yeah, know who's, the, I don't know who's going to miss practice or be, but someone is definitely going to get caught out. But you'll you'll see, you'll hear about it on Instagram because everyone shares that kind of stuff on Instagram. So. Yeah. Well, I'm pretty hard for people that have traveled in from the US or Australia, New Zealand as well. They've got one time shift to deal with and then another one thrown in the mix. Like it, it must be a harder, I guess, for people that aren't within Europe. Yeah. I'm trying to think actually, would, would, it, would it be of benefit to you? I, I don't know, depending if you travel east or west, will it actually, actually, you know, be, be the crux of your, your jet lag plan actually finish it off and make it perfect for race day i don't know i haven't done the the science on it um yeah like traveling far for a single event um and then going back home and whatever else logistically financially the whole lot is it's, it's, it's pretty ridiculous but i think that's been highlighted already um by teams and riders and message boards and forums and all the rest um in terms of it impacting performance if you're at the elite end of the of the field in any any of the categories it should be managed it should be dealt with it's professional sports so just deal with it sorry yeah. <laughs> simple as that <laughs> like you, you complain about how silly it is both environmentally financially logistically all of the above yes it's ridiculous but you can definitely manage the variables pretty well so. yeah fair and you um you mentioned the supply chain side of things are, are there teams that are in a position where part availability or even frame availability is like a significant issue for them do you think I don't know if it's a significant issue, but I have heard murmurings through riders I work with and, and friends and, and other, you know, people in the industry that yes, there is like, oh, you know, some, some people only got their, their season's worth of wheels or rims last week and they have to build them all or test them for the first time and dial in tire pressure changes due to rim changes and blah, blah, blah. So there's loads of micro variables like that. Um, I, I'm not privy to more detailed information. Maybe there are teams literally having nightmares where everyone's <laughs> crying around the Ouija board at nighttime because they can't solve problems. You know, I don't know, but it is, it's pretty, it's pretty challenging. It is, it's, it's super challenging, especially because the industry is so heavily, 
you know, supply chains for teams are relatively tightly linked to supply chains for consumers because we use give or take the same products uh, other than things like prototype frames, swing arms and, and bits and bobs like that. But, you know, they are quite heavily linked. Uh, and even if you're on prototype product, like let's say that the prototype RockShock fork, um, I don't know how that is related to their manufacturing and supply chains for their consumer product, but I'm sure there's relationships there that they can't just stop consumer production to run a, an extra run of prototypes, for example. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't do that sort of juggling. So, you know, pray for yeah. the people who do. <laughs> yeah. And then for riders on new teams that have made shifts over the off season, is this like, is this a journey into the unknown for them or will they have done so many rehearsals with team camps and stuff? Yeah, it looks like at the sharper end at least, and even not so at the sharper end, even teams with considerably smaller budgets and the big teams, it looks like team camp, team camp fever is most certainly a part of World Cup downhill now. You know, everyone seems to love to just get together and go ride and test and train and get the free laps out and, battle each other so even you know i coach a couple of riders who've changed teams this year and they've already met up ridden with tested done training team camps etc you know for three maybe four weeks with their new teams and it's only middle of march so i think yeah, the vast majority would have gelled well it looks like and it looks like by and large equipment suspension frames tires and wheels the main equipment it looks like everyone's on pretty good stuff so I think yeah, limited limited issues. Um, other than like we said, you know, people use Taruka or Briud races to see how everything gels at race intensity. The World Cup race intensity is just a slightly different beast, and the track is going to be gnarly. Especially if, for example, the race starts slightly wet or damp, or it's wet in the mornings and it dries, the track just get deteriorates even that much more. So, even if you were shredding and loser. and you rode like we rode the most blown out version of that loser World Cup track ever, but that was a dry manageable blown out i think when we get to lord um it's just going to be a true world cup track so those sorts of little variables where you're on new team new product you come in you've ripped a handlebar and a back wheel off and you and the, you and the mechanic fully have them gelled as to how you deal with it, ripping a back wheel off 20 minutes before qualifying so, you know those sorts of things may crop up um but yeah everyone will, will manage to deal with it i think um across the board you know teams are pretty professional riders staff mechanics etc it's it's pretty good these days, you know? Yeah. And then the biggest kind of bike change, I guess, in my opinion, across the pits is, uh, is intense. That's a big sort of shift from VPP to their new bike. Mm. And they've got a pretty, uh, pretty capable unit of, uh, of guys there of Joe, Aaron, Dakota and, and Seth interested to see how those guys get on on that, on that new prototype. Yeah. Super, super interested to see how that goes. Um, obviously it's, it's a big departure in terms of frame design, um, Dakota Norton has you know been in the top 10 more often than not the last two years um, probably more consistent than people realise unless they dig into the results um, and Aaron's, Aaron's Aaron I think a lot of people have written him off but I wouldn't write him off especially if conditions and a few other factors align um, I wouldn't write him off um, winning I'm not sure to be totally honest because the, the depth is winning's not something you have control over anymore I think you've only got control over peak performance and then the times the times do the rest and um, but yeah super interested to see how that pans out um and it's an alloy frame and i think in two to three years time that's potentially all we'll see in world cup down personally interesting what yeah. why are you thinking along those lines um trends probably will, will be the primary <laughs> the primary factor will be that no the primary factor will be that obviously bikes prototype bikes will be made out of aluminium 
like we've seen yeah. with, with everyone. And then riders will ride the aluminium bikes and they'll probably be a medium to high pivot because that's the trend. And mm-hmm. the ensemble of factors of frame, stiffness, rigidity, torsional strength, etc., which you're slightly rear axle pass that chews through bumps. Um, I think people are just like, oh, this is actually quite nice. Um, so I think actually that's potentially where things will where things will go. And once consumers accept the fact that, yes, you spend 18,000 euro on an aluminium bike, <laughs> then the industry will be like, sweet, we'll just produce these. So, yeah, but I, I am I am really interested to see how, how, especially how riders like Aaron, who've had a bit of a slump and numerous setbacks, similar to Amory in, in some ways, but Amory's been able to execute you know, coming back from injury more more rapidly than Aaron has. So that's that sort of thing is going to be super interesting. And they've changed the V tires and have got some pretty stiff wheels that are in E13 wheels, I think they're still on. So that yeah. whole new tire combo, I don't know the carcass strength and stiffness of, of a V tire, but stiff wheels, new tire, um, relatively stiff suspension in the Fox stuff, and then stiff in terms of rigidity and that sort of thing so that all those variable factors super interesting to see how that stuff pans out for everyone you know how it tracks and the gnarliest the gnarly tracks which lowered could be and then how it all stacks up with the, the mental game of bringing prototype stuff to racing and it's it's good it's yeah. super exciting a super exciting time to be a part to be a part of world cup downhill again you know 100 percent. and i guess worth pointing out that aaron took the win there in 15 and 16 so yeah. he's got form yeah absolutely he's got form and uh Going back over the footage, I don't know if anyone's as well. It's not your job, like it is mine. But if anyone's as nerdy as me, and they go back, uh, 2017 footage just does not exist on Red Bull TV. It's, you can't okay. full real live footage. Just I can't find it. If anyone else finds it, send me the link. Um, but you can get enough highlights and, and and other footage to see. And looking at Aaron's YT, the wheel size, the frame size, how the suspension performed in certain sections, and how he rode the track. Uh, to win in terms of how direct he was. Yeah. Um, I don't think that combo of factors would win the race this weekend coming. Interesting. I think, I think the sport has progressed massively. Even look at Lloyd Bruni's winning, potentially winning run before he had that huge get off in 2016. And you look at how the, the rear end of that bike tracks compared to how his current bike tracks. And I think it's just night and day. You know, I think that the sport has progressed, it seems, just in, in many factors. And how races are won now is, it's, yeah. Being, I think how Aaron was winning races in 2016, 2017 on that YT is not how races are going to be easily won in 2022. But that's just how, my, how would, my opinion. How would, how would you describe the difference? Um, I think there's more people on bikes that allow them to ride closer to their technical and physical limits now yeah. than ever before um i don't think aaron's yt back then was was particularly effective in all types of terrain and bumps and stuff you can see there's a lot of a lot of high speed kind of kicking on the rear end at times um i think yeah just there's more people on more capable bikes training and the whole all the, the factors that go into building race runs from from you know trackside analysis and team support and all that thing has just progressed so much that being super direct everywhere while it's often the best option isn't the only option to get from A to B as fast as possible and you can see that with, with the winning runs from last year there's been quite you know the, the best of the best will always go direct as possible when possible but when it pays longer term to be a little bit more round in your lines a little bit smoother and stuff so I think tactically strategically races have been won slightly differently it looks like the last couple of mm-hmm. seasons 20, 2021 2022 especially 
Yeah. Have Intense had so have Intense had trackside kind of analysis people, or have they not really got into that too much? I don't think so. No, and I, I honestly right. don't think. I think well, if we're still talking about you know Aaron's Intense team. I don't think they've had an easy run at like getting the team up and running between Aaron's injuries, COVID, strange schedules, bad wet, all the the weird variables. Where having the teams have had maybe a bit of a solid structure in place already before we've had to deal with these factors. I've had an easier time transitioning through, you know. Yeah. But I think this year in particular, because you know that's a big part of my role at the World Cups is, is being trackside to see things to relay feedback to the riders whatever they they need or whatever they they don't know they need and i think it's just going to be a busy busy place in 2022 yeah a, re- a real sure. busy place i think it's going to be warfare i'm going to have to get a, a <laughs> two meter long selfie stick just to get the camera out there you know <laughs> <laughs> cool eh? and then i guess the other really interesting thing from a from a team change tech perspective new bike is nico on the uh the frameworks on his very own designed and built bike he seems to be in a pretty good place. So obviously at his pinky break in uh, downhill southeast, but back on the bike, I think he's out in Spain at the moment uh, over at um, the old mob HQ with Martin Whiteley getting some some testing in on a, another version of the frame. Excited to see that thing going. How, how do you feel about that project? Yeah, super excited. Nico Nico's just one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet um, inside or outside the sport. Um, actually did a bit of riding with him last year. And we, we chatted quite a bit and he's just a super nice guy. So I think seeing how, um, I didn't even know that this was his vision. He never, he never said anything at the time, uh, but this was his vision for, you know, for how he wanted the rest of his career to kind of pan out, to take control of these factors himself, which is, it's not radical, but it's really, really ballsy and it's interesting. And the fact that he's managed to make a bike straight off the bat that looks like it works or two bikes or multiple bikes that look like they work straight off the bat. Um, is is super impressive so i I can't wait to see how he goes you know and i I know he had a neck injury that he was recovering from last year as well which i think as anyone who's ever had neck issues before knows how much of a challenge it is like neck mid back lower back neck upper back mid back for downhill is is very highly demanded because you're trying to keep your head stable as you're plowing down massive hills and so i'm really excited to see how he goes yeah hopefully the pinky doesn't hold him back too much so yeah yeah, super excited literally fingers crossed um all right importance of the first race like how big a deal is this first round for people um yeah it's it's only as important as all the other races in 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 reality if, if we're totally honest uh, it's primarily because we we have so few um that they all actually matter um everyone will want to execute well come race day no matter what that's a given um people may have a nightmare or the weather may play funny games like it did in 2017 and as we saw in 2017 the season panned out as you'd expect by the end you know the the top dogs in every category were the top dogs um so i think even if we have craziness like that the season will probably pan out pretty well but yeah everyone's going to be super i think because the, the investment in team camps the investment in prototyping and trying details and you know from idler position to swing arm stiffness and thickness and all those sorts of things like that all the details teams and riders are going into um and the financial burden that that brings and the the time burden that brings on riders and everyone else i think everyone's just going to want to go out there and do the best job possible but really what it boils down to is that everyone that's at world cup is a racer and racers always want to race 
And racing means comparing yourself to others. Even if you're actually only racing the clock, you're comparing yourself to your, your peers. And it has that ego goal element to it where you want to, you want to do your best and your best, even if you, even if it shouldn't be is in your, the back of your mind is judged off kind of where you see yourself in the pecking order. So, you know, that's, this is the nature of being a human. That is the beast we are. So uh, I think that's when push comes to shove and you're sitting in that star gate with, 20 seconds to go, 30 seconds to go. Uh, that's kind of, yeah, that's where people are at. They're like, actually, I was going to do my best here because my best should be my best. You know, I, I need I need to do my best for for myself and the amount of work I've put in. So that's what we'll see, you know. Good stuff. All right, well, we should let you... On, on the topic of Stargates, um, a gentleman was the UCI starter, uh, timing Stargate guy for the last... 15 years maybe 10 15 years uh-huh. Guinel was his name he's from Brittany in France and he, he just recently passed away oh no um so Miriam was the only only writer I saw who shared it uh on Instagram that's how I found out uh-huh. I'd often share a joke with him um I'd be at the top waiting between categories for warm-ups at riders and stuff and he'd come out of the start gate between categories to light up a cigarette and have a bit of a joke and a laugh <laughs> and because I think he smoked, he smoked quite a lot of cigarettes he had a very distinct voice so yeah. I'm all of the World Cup riders uh, and any of the staff, the mechanics and stuff who spend time around the Starkate will remember him and he'd say, you know, 30 seconds in his Frenchish accent. And then you'd hear 30, 10. So I, I think a lot of the riders' interaction only with him would have been 30, 10, 5, go. Um, but yeah, yeah. Poor, poor guy passed away. So um, big, big shout out to his yeah, family once and stuff. Because he's actually, he was just th- those solid features at the World Cups that all of a sudden disappears. Actually, it's, it's a strange one. It kind of shows you that it is a, it's a pretty small little family of traveling lunatics, you know? Yeah. And a sport full of humans, right? Yeah, totally. Totally. Absolutely. It'll be, it'll be different not having them there, you know? So, yeah. All right. Well, we shall uh, let you get on the road over to Lords soon. And uh, yeah, I, for one, cannot wait to see some racing. Super excited. Hope it goes well for all of your riders and for everyone involved and that everyone gets down healthy with times they're happy with. And we'll see where we end up uh, after round one and we'll catch up again before Fort William. Yeah, we'll see how the egos the egos fare after round one. <laughs> nice one. All right, cheers for your time, Chris. Thank you. See you soon. All right, that's it for this episode with Chris. I really hope you've enjoyed it and you're as excited as I am for the racing this weekend. Don't forget to head over to Pinkbike, put in your fantasy league team and join the Downtime Podcast League to be part of the competition over the season. We'll give an update as to how the league's going on the podcast in the future. A massive thanks to Maxis for supporting this season and making it all possible. Maxis have incredible tyres for you, no matter how or where you ride. So head over to Maxis.com or visit your local Maxis dealer and check them out. I'm currently running the DHR Max Terror in the back and a DHF Max Grip up front, and it's an awesome combo for me while the trails are still a bit on the muddy side. Here's a few other links that might be useful to you. Downtimepodcast.com forward slash subscribe so you don't miss an episode forward slash shop to support the show by getting yourself some merch and forward slash EP if you'd like a copy of our lovely print project Downtime EP. Also, don't forget to give us a follow on Instagram where we're at Downtime Podcast. As always, spread the word and make sure as many people as possible are listening. If you share the episodes on your social media, don't forget to tag in at Max's Bike and at Downtime Podcast so we can pick a winner of some lovely gloves and socks. That's it for today. We've got some more awesome episodes coming up really soon. But until next time, get out and ride.